Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Carl Sona. Carl was working his way through a successful career in medical device sales when he realized something was missing. There was a part of himself that wasn't able to bring to bear in his work. So he's one of those people who joined what's now being called the Great Resignation, and he struck out on his own. Today, he is the founder and CEO of The Cass Company, a firm that specializes in brokering profitable partnerships between corporate brands and Black-owned businesses. And he is the host of his own podcast, Dear Black CEO. So hi, Carl. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Well, hello, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to the community out there, all the Sourcing Hero listeners for tuning in and giving us an opportunity to kind of talk and share some information here. Absolutely. Now, I, I shared kind of your your story arc, right? You're a podcaster, so I can, I can go <laughs> into these very technical terms. I yeah. gave the very high-level story arc. But yeah. can you share a little bit more detail about your professional background? Absolutely. What podcaster doesn't love talking about their background? <laughs> oh, and themselves uh, <laughs> more generally. <laughs> well, hey, listen, you know, to really give the listeners out there uh, full justice, you know, well before I got into the podcasting and the helping Black-owned and minority-owned companies enhance their digital experience to be more visible with corporate brands, well before any of that started, it's important that I go back to childhood for a second if I may. Uh, And it's important because I'm the son of immigrant parents from West Africa. You know, my parents came here from a small country called Cameroon because in their mind, America was and still is the greatest land of opportunity, right? And so I remember one evening before bedtime, I was probably six or seven years old. And this is really a transformational pivot in my life. I just remember, you know, saying my prayers before bed, I could see my uniform for private school perfectly pressed and hung up for me the next morning. And I remember hearing my parents in the room right over to me talking to relatives from back in in Cameroon. And these are in the days of international uh, uh, phone cards, right, where you you had a lot of static and things were always kind of difficult as far as the connection. So so they were kind of yelling and they were saying something to the effect of, we don't have enough money to send back home for one of my cousin's tuition fees for that semester. And Kelly, I remember my heart just breaking. Um, I was completely overcome with guilt because in my little six or seven year old mind, I'm like, I get to go to school tomorrow and do these great art projects and recess and all these great things with my friends. Whereas someone in my family, my direct family, that's literally my age has to sit this one out. And Right then and there, it's super weird when I tell this story, I just made up my mind. I came to a decision, right? I cut off all other options and I said to myself, well, I guess I'm going to have to use this opportunity and the access to this privilege to do something great with it so that I can help the underdog out. 
literally that that's just like a thought that I had. And that really seeded the intention of everything that I do today. Because fast forward to now, or I guess a couple years ago, I was in this very thriving, successful medical device career, the hustle and bustle of the industry is quite a lot. And it was very fulfilling. But something that ended up happening was that company I was with for about eight years, it was my first job out of college, they ended up selling for multiple nine figures. And I had been very blessed and fortunate to be a very high level contributor from a sales perspective, because it was a young and thriving company, as they were growing and expanding commercially, I was able to kind of, you know, do that whole corporate ladder ascension thing that we all hear about sometimes and did really well there. But the thing that I learned at the end of the acquisition was I really learned how equity works. And it was interesting because a lot of my peers, a lot of my mentors, if you will, in the medical device space had been egging me on to continue to build a lifelong career in med device sales. But after I I saw how the equity worked and I saw that the lion's share of that deal went to our early investors and board of directors and C-suite leaders, by the way, all of whom looked nothing like me, I started to really remember my childhood dream. And I had realized that, oh, wow, while I had had my head down, busting my butt for this company, I hadn't really been thinking about how I could use my unique gifts, skills, and talents to help the underdog. And that's really where I reached the proverbial fork of the road uh, in 2020, where I ultimately chose to go out on my own. So I'll kind of pause right there because I've given you quite a bit and see what comes up for you if that helps. Well, it's interesting because you know, so many times, whether it's here on The Sourcing Hero or it's other general business interviews or, or phone calls, we talk about empathy right? We talk about relationships, but clearly even from that formative age, I think you said you were six or seven and you're looking at the uniform and hearing the conversation. At that point, you know, kids are great. They're so raw. And so clearly for you, the empathy piece is 100% innately part of who you are. And it's interesting that you know, then you go off. And like we said, you have this successful career, but it's at those crossing the road points in our lives where we can either sort of pop on to what the next most natural thing seems to be, or we take stock, right? And for you to have that empathy rise back to the top, um, what a, what a gift. I mean, I have to think that it has contributed vastly and we're going to talk more about this, but to sort of the richness of your personal and professional journey. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that you use that word empathy because a lot of what really began to surface for me as I was contemplating long-term career aspirations was everything that was going on from a social justice perspective in 2020, right? So not only did we have the pandemic, but we obviously had all of the civil unrest with, you know, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, just to name a few. And I began to look at this and I'm like, oh my goodness, there's so much going on right now. On top of everything going on in my personal life, I had just launched the Dear Black CEO podcast, which in its first iteration for season one, we were primarily focused on speaking with African American and minority-owned uh, entrepreneurs, you know, many of whom had actually once been in corporate but that had exited to build their own business. And 
one of the recurring themes that was coming up, especially with those with the B2B model, were the challenges that they were having with procurement and, and navigating the sourcing uh, and procurement process with larger companies, you know, with these larger enterprises. And so it just, it put me in this position where I was like, okay, I could either look at all of this information and see everything going around me and take it as coincidence and just continue to passively live my life. Or I can challenge myself to think from an empathetic standpoint about what I could potentially offer, you know, no matter how small or big, to help move this situation in a better uh, direction for these people that are experiencing some of these challenges. And, and, and that's what really propelled me. You know, you touched on empathy. That's what really propelled me to jump out and take the risk, you know, and endure the fear because it is very scary when oh, terrifying. <laughs> you're the oh only God. one looking around and you have to do all the things. You know how that is, Kelly. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Now, and it's interesting, and we're not going to talk a lot about sales, so hang with me, my procurement yeah. supply chain friends. We're not going to talk a lot about sales, but before we kind of get to the main thrust of the conversation, I do want to have an opportunity to have you tap back into that for a sec, because as procurement professionals, we, again, we talk about supply relationships, we talk about key or strategic suppliers, we talk about partnership and collaboration, but so many times I feel like those become habitual words that are almost more about manners. I came up in, in procurement being taught that vendor was sort of a rude word and supplier was a polite word. Hmm. And now sometimes you'll hear people say, well, our vendors are our tactical suppliers and our suppliers are our more strategic partners. But if we think about, I know, and it's it's all it's so we love our labels, don't we? <laughs> oh, unless we can have an acronym, we love the acronyms, and otherwise we'll settle for labels. Uh, but what would be your perspective as someone who's been an entrepreneur but also has a, a background in sales about the general nature, or maybe the opportunity, whether we're tapping into it or not, yeah. of corporate relationships with their suppliers in general? Yeah, yeah, I know this is a great question. You know, for me, I, I'm kind of a simpleton. Uh, I keep things relatively simple in order to be an effective human being. And for me, relationships, whether they be personal ones or professional ones, like what we're talking about, for me, they're ultimately built upon two things, and that's communication and value. And so let me drill in a little bit more. You know, in my opinion, for just about any relationship to work and be sustainable long term, I really believe that both parties should, one, always strive to give more than the either takes, right, in order for them to actually truly be valuable. And I think moving forward on the communication aspect of things, it's it's so much more than just the verbal exchange or what we say to one another, right? And I think it's more about a willingness and a true desire to truly understand the other party's world. You know, so if I'm a diverse supplier and I'm going after a Fortune 1000, right? Like in order for me to try to have any chance of winning the business one day, which is something that we all want on the supplier side, right? I, I, I've got to sort of slow down to go fast and really challenge myself to find ways that I can better understand what that corporate customer might be experiencing. You know, what is it that they might be actually going through? And it kind of touches on that empathy piece that we just talked on earlier. 
you know, and and I think the converse is true for corporate buyers. One of the things that I always try to get to the root of when I'm talking with larger companies looking for suppliers is, you know, how do you all think about communicating your needs in a transparent and easy to understand way to your suppliers? And and not just your current needs, but your future needs, you know, where is it that you are going? Because I I think it's safe to say that just about every company would assert that they are looking for suppliers or vendors, whatever word you want to use, that can be sustainable long-term partners. And so how do you begin to think about communicating what that roadmap looks like so that these suppliers can internalize and digest that information? And hopefully, if they're quality companies, they're thinking about what their research and development needs to look like over the course of that time window to deliver the solutions and the services and the products that are going to best meet their customers' needs. So I I honestly feel that when you can focus on the value exchange, like I talked about, and the communication, that the two can really work in tandem to really create very competitive and thriving economies. Now, it's interesting because you talk about how well do we articulate our requirements. And I've found it interesting in my own experience, especially in retrospect, how often procurement relies upon really good supplier partners or prospective suppliers to ask good questions versus us saying, let's really do an excellent job of capturing sort of the vision or the the big picture behind whatever this is that we're trying to buy. We sort of put out the basics because we're as much as we like to talk about value and strategy, a lot of what we do still comes down to that sort of lowest common denominator, apples to apples comparison type of an approach. And so we boil it down and then we say, well, anybody that can provide us with more, right? That's their, that's their competitive advantage. Whereas if we were offering up a fuller picture of what we're trying to accomplish, we would probably find ourselves being pitched a very different type of solution in some cases, yeah, I think that's a really, really great point. And I think, you know, this is where I do see on the business development side, some of the diverse owned companies struggle is oftentimes, you know, they're they're wearing a number of hats just to keep the lights on and to stay yes. on top of operations. And so the business development acumen and, you know, that tactical full kind of conversation and kind of question seeking process is just not fully developed. And so there are a lot of things that slip through the cracks, which is one of the things that I work very effectively in, and I try very hard to, you know, hopefully help them bridge. But to what you said about, you know, the the buyers or the companies being a little bit more transparent about what they're, where they're going, I think that it ultimately sets them up, long term speaking, to have not just better long term partners, but to actually have a better experience so that they can ultimately drive value for their shareholders and their stakeholders and really protect those interests. I mean, think about it. Like if I'm a consumer or if I'm somebody that's getting ready to build a home, right? And and this is my forever home and I'm starting to pull all the different pieces of the puzzle to the table, you know, the architect, the GCs, the interior decorators, the landscapers, blah, blah, blah. And I am not willing or vulnerable enough to have a conversation of what I see in my head Mm -hmm. relative to my heart's desires. How do I expect those professionals at the table to meet or hopefully even exceed 
the vision of what I have in my head for this dream home that's my forever place, right? Like I think the likelihood of that vision being met or exceeded goes down quite substantially. And so that's where I would urge buyers to come to the table uh, and be a bit more transparent about where they're wanting to go. I I think that it could really jumpstart healthier relationships coming out of the gates from those suppliers that are literally like waiting hand and foot to serve you. Like they want to serve you, help them serve you, you know? So that that's kind of how I see it. Does that make sense, Kelly? I think it does. And the question that it raises in my mind is if procurement is generally trying to improve our relationships with at yeah. least some of the larger, more strategic suppliers that we work with, should we be approaching, and actually I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you this in in two different ways. So if we need to, we'll we'll circle back. I'm wondering if we need to approach, I was going to say, our diverse owned suppliers. Should we have different relationships with our diverse owned suppliers? But given your specific background in supporting black business owners and entrepreneurs, especially CEOs. Is there an additional way that we should consider not just saying, okay, we're going to deal with all of the suppliers that have come in as part of our supplier diversity program a little bit differently with, with these specific goals and intents in mind? Is there another slice of how we should look at that specifically targeted to minority-owned businesses? So I don't know if you have a point of view about sort of the more overarching diversity piece, um, but I definitely would like to hear your point of view around minority business owners and the relationships that corporates should be building there. Yeah. So I'm going to be very careful about how I answer this question, but I'm also going to be honest about how I answer this question. So to the first part of your question, should we or should corporates approach minorities differently, right? I would affirmatively say no. Um, in my opinion, it's of my belief that that could really create a bit of a slippery slope and and almost create like a reverse stigma, if you will, right? Where there, you know, there's this bias sometimes, and I'm not here to call out corporates, but there can be a bias from procurement stakeholders that, you know, minority-owned companies are risky or yes. they don't have the capacity. They're not large enough to do business with us, right? And so because of that stigma, they are largely excluded. And I think you see that in, in some of the RFPs and things of that nature that go out that have a number of questions that don't even apply to these businesses. But to to go in thinking that we will rectify some of these past transgressions uh, that have kept minorities or minority businesses excluded by thinking that we now need to just treat them differently. And so that means we're going to cut corners and we're going to you know, let them in without proper due diligence and let them in without appropriately vetting them. That can also be equally, if not more problematic, because what ends up happening is you have diverse businesses that come in that maybe can't meet some of the benchmarks and the requirements set forth by that organization. And then what that does over time is that that actually reaffirms, if not cements, that confirmation bias, You know that feeling of the diverse-owned companies just can't handle the corporate contracts. So I want to be very mindful about this conversation of treating us differently and, and, and you know, 
potentially giving us handouts. I don't want to speak for all minority-owned companies, but the ones that I have the privilege of doing business with or speaking with, by and large, are not looking for handouts. You know, if anything, they're just looking for a fair and equal opportunity yeah. to be able to demonstrate their value and what they can do. And so when it comes to this conversation of navigating the procurement process, I'd really, again, encourage corporations to not think about it so much from the lens of we need to like treat them differently. And I think this probably speaks to the second part of your question. But think, again, putting on your empathy hat, think about where these businesses are and, and maybe how we can retool some of our systems, some of our processes as it relates to procurement to meet them where they are so that they can come along for the journey and, and ultimately demonstrate if they're fit for the opportunities that are available. And from a practical sense, maybe that looks like capacity building. And I know that this sort of thing goes on for a number of companies where organizations will you know, award a contract to a new diverse supplier and they'll immediately put on their partnership hat and start to think about what do we need to do to help build this organization's financial health or their operational capacity? Like those sorts of things, I think, are good and true relative to, you know, just the long-term sustainability of the organization that's now brought in that diverse partner. So that's how I feel about that. And I, I hope that kind of gets to the root of where you're going there, Kelly. I think it does. And I think maybe part of what it comes back to is the motivation on the corporate side of that relationship equation. You know, it's interesting yeah. as diversity and sustainability start to get more and more often sort of rolled in together in ESG. I feel like one of the benefits that have come has come from that is that we can have slightly more parallel conversations with our colleagues in Europe. Because my understanding has been for, you know, the last little while that sustainability was sort of first from a priority standpoint in Europe and that they would say, yes, well, diversity is part of that. But diversity means a different thing depending on where you are. And, and so that context is important. Whereas in the U.S., again, depending on industry, but for the most part, diversity has been a higher priority. And now some of our sustainability work is starting to catch up. In Europe, it tends to be more regulation driven versus in the US, you know, if you're B2C, in a lot of cases, it's investors and consumers that are driving the change. Um, and, you know, there are different drivers in, in B2B, but it all tends to originate from the company itself. Do you have yeah. any thoughts around where we start to bring motivation like regulations into this and the insight that's being focused and, and trained on ESG? Yeah. Is something like a regulation beneficial in that it makes everything more of a priority and it standardizes and it provides a mechanism for tracking? Or do you think that has more of a tendency to sort of unintentionally incentivize some box checking just to meet the requirements of this law that you didn't necessarily choose as, as a value project of your own? Yeah. Um, you know, I always want to be cautious about overregulation, and, and maybe that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> but I, I think as it relates to, you know, what we've been talking about on this segment, uh, supplier diversity, supplier inclusion, I think that some of the ESG regulations could certainly help push the needle forward and, and, and really help 
I guess you could say, evolve business practices, considering that ESG is is kind of now becoming kind of its own key performance indicator that that sort of forecasts an organization's long-term resiliency and health. You know, so when you think more specifically about diversity, equity, and inclusion, or supplier and uh, inclusion programs, you know, that have traditionally been seen as the initiatives that are just the right thing to do or that help an organization sort of maintain their optics, kind of those more stereotypical yeah. box checking activities that you were referencing. I think that ESG is actually now, as it becomes integrated into the investment process, and it's quite frankly tied to the bottom line for many publicly traded companies. I think that it's actually forcing or incentivizing uh, these corporates to really think seriously about what they're doing in some of these different categories. You know, so let, let's think about how things have been done traditionally. Uh, traditionally, public companies have kind of operated based off of what's in the best interest of increasing shareholder value. You know, how do we get the stock price up? Well, now with this new emphasis on this conversation, especially around DEI and supplier diversity that maybe fall under the S and the G part of the equation of ESG, public companies are increasingly more accountable for more than just shareholder interest, but broadly speaking, stakeholder value. And those stakeholders are, are defined as certainly your investors, but also your suppliers. You know, What does your supplier diversity program look like? Do you have one? Is it comprehensive? You know, How do you think about your employees? Do you have a lot of turnover? Mm. Do you have... Uh, a workplace environment and culture that is accepting of people from diverse backgrounds, you know, the communities where you do business, so on and so forth. So I think when you look at all of those things that kind of fit under the E, the S, and the G, it's starting to create a new level of accountability that is justified that or that can be justified by business, right? Because it's it's actually tied to the bottom line. <laughs> and I think that at the end of the day, the only color that really matters is the color of green. You know, not, <laughs> not me being black, not you being white, right? Yeah. If I can even use those labels. Um, <laughs> but the color of green. And so I think, you know, that is what people are ultimately going to pay attention to. And ultimately, that's going to shift and drive the behaviors to protect that. So those are some and of my thoughts there. In terms of that color green, and and I'll agree with you when you get down to it, right? It's everybody's favorite color, right? <laughs> I mean, hopefully most people enjoy their work, um, yeah. but if you suddenly took away all the money, we'd probably be doing something else. Um, what I would actually love to hear about from you, it's such a unique treat for me to have a, a host in his own right on The Sourcing Hero with me. I would love to hear, as you think about your own podcast, Dear Black CEO, what are some of the really standout thoughts or, or key takeaways? What are a, a couple of your favorite moments from your guests on your podcast? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm happy to share. Uh, so there are a couple that stand out mostly because I had conversations with both of these folks somewhat recently. Um, and one of them is uh, a lady by the name of Suzanne Mariga. So she's a, she's a CPA and she owns her own business that helps minority-owned enterprises. And she actually authored a book. It's called um, Profit First for Minority Business Enterprises. And she talks about this concept of our future being dependent on your profit. 
you know, and that's speaking directly to the minority-owned company. And it's this, um, you know, it, it speaks to this challenge that many small businesses face, but certainly minority-owned businesses, and that's the challenge of profitability. Like, how do you actually run a profitable and sustainable business? Because the facts are, Kelly, you know, many minority business owners are first-generation business owners, and so they don't come from a family lineage of seasoned business owners where these skills and, and, and all this knowledge has been handed down. And it creates a situation where many of them are kind of left to figure it out on their own. And so you can imagine that the likelihood of running an unprofitable business when you don't have the skills and the knowledge goes down quite substantially. So when she talks about the future being dependent on your profit, I just love that so much. And I encourage first-generation minority-owned business owners to think about that, not from like a burden perspective, but from an opportunity perspective. Like, how cool is it that you get to be one of the first ones in your family to figure this thing out, you know, to take the ownership, to get the knowledge, to get the skills, whatever that might look like for you, so that you can set up the future generations of your family or you know, the employees that you work with and their families and the communities where you do business, you can set all of these people up for something better going forward. And I think that's an incredible, I would say, call to action for minority-owned companies that are struggling with uh, the profitability piece. And and if I can share one more, if it's okay, uh, Randall Dobbins has actually become a bit of a mentor of mine. He's a very unique gentleman because he was a corporate buyer for some of the biggest companies out there for years and years, like like the Shell Oil Company. And then he actually got into business for himself. So he is an MWBE. And now he actually, you know, teaches MWBEs how to get corporate contracts. So he's kind of a, an educational savant, if you will. <laughs> and, and he also authored a book that's called It Ain't All Rocket Science. It's uh, three success steps to, to, to more corporate contracts. And he talks about the quickest way to go out of business, the quickest and most expensive way to go out of business is to try to go at it all alone. And, and this just really resonates with me because I know what it's like to be the first in your family to do this and to put so much pressure on yourself and to kind of trick yourself into this really weird narrative that you can't bring on a partner or a strategic and you kind of have to figure out the Rubik's Cube puzzle all by yourself in order to earn your stripes. Like, like th- that's yeah. definitely a narrative that I think many of us play in our minds. And when you think about, you know, the world of B2B contracts, the requirements can be so steep sometimes. It's like, what are we doing to not <laughs> try to go out and find the right strategic partner? Yeah. You know, and so Randall talks a lot about business owners getting very clear on what they do well, but also getting very clear on what they don't do so well, right? And, and and kind of finding the right partner. You know, how do you think about effective partnership and building those alliances so that you can get to the top? And I just that's just, that's just another thing that I really want to encourage anybody out there, for that matter, listening to think about because we definitely live in a partnership economy. I love partnerships and I'm looking for them. So if you're somebody out there that's got something interesting, let's talk. <laughs> and that's what I'll see on that. Yeah. Well, and there there are so many inspiring people, and I always love it when somebody is not only willing to, I mean, really, it it's terrifying, right? We joked about it, but it's risky, it's terrifying to go out on your own. And 
in some cases, whether you know somebody else who has done it or not, maybe you have a better sense of really kind of the chance you're taking. But until you walk in those shoes, you have no idea how heavy and uncomfortable they can sometimes be. But when someone is willing to put it out there and take that risk, and then after they've become successful, open up their journey for everybody else. I give people so much credit that are willing to share what they've learned and, and share their insight with others. And it it actually becomes a nice transition to the question that I ask everybody that joins me here on The Sourcing Hero. And I always give choices. Um, we're inclusive in the sense that not everybody's in procurement, <laughs> right? Your sales, we're, we're glad to have you with us. Um, but yeah. I always ask sort of one of two things, either in your mind, what's a sourcing hero? Or more broadly speaking, what role does heroism play in a business context? Oh, man. It's such a great question. And I, I'll probably kind of answer both inadvertently because that's what I tend to do. And, you know, it, I, I honestly purposely didn't go listen to other people's responses. I've been listening to your podcast. I love what you do here. And I, and I didn't listen to like that question because I didn't want to be <laughs> assuaged one way or the other. So this this answer I'm going to give really just kind of comes from my heart. And really, it was the first thing in my mind when I when I saw and heard the question was this idea of the hero's journey. You know, so when I was in high school, I took an American literature class by the guy by by a name of a guy named uh, Mr. Carney. He was kind of one of those iconic teachers, and he taught us. The cosmogonic cycle. It's this idea that there are three steps to a hero or to a heroine's journey. You know, the first step, and we can kind of relate this to the sourcing process, is a call to adventure, you know, where you or the hero goes from an area of like the known to the unknown. And, and everything that they've known about sourcing, if you're in the corporate sector, or about winning the contract, if you're a supplier. Everything that you've known about that is challenged. All your thoughts, beliefs, prior you know perceptions are challenged. And hopefully somewhere along the way, when you answer the call to the adventure, you meet a guide, kind of like what we just spoke about. And the second step is an initiation where the hero or the heroine faces just a multitude of challenges. You know, And these challenges oftentimes tempt them to revert back to their old way of trying to get a contract or their old way of sourcing, right? But if they can stick in that proverbial abyss long enough, they're ultimately transformed. And it leads them to the third and final stage where they're born again, and they get to come back into the known, completely transformed. And so to really put a bow on this answer, for me, the sourcing hero or the sourcing heroine is the individual that actually withstands and endures the entire cycle and that comes out the other end willing to actually speak openly, transparently, and honestly about what it is that they've learned so that they can hopefully lessen the grade for others coming behind them. That is how I would define the sourcing hero or heroine. And, and Carl, and everyone who's listening in who has heard these other episodes and listened to the other answers... I can now tell you absolutely no one has ever cited the cosmogonic cycle <laughs> in answering this question. So they, they can back me up as they listen into this episode. I am I am not flattering you. That's the very first time we've we've had this come up. But I love that the answer is a journey. Correct. Right? It's not, oh, well, you know, 
heroes are tall or heroes are brave or right. It's, it's always more complicated than that. And I love this idea that heroism is, is a journey, um, especially when it's a cyclical one, because that means it's never done. Right. Exactly. That's a, that's the perfect one word to sum that up in. Well, Carl, I, I love the conversation that we've had. And obviously there's a lot more listening that people can do if they've enjoyed hearing your point of view. Yeah. So whether it's getting in touch with you directly or it's knowing where to find your podcast, what sort of next steps would you recommend for people that have listened to our conversation and would like to find out more? Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for asking and thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, to keep it simple, I'm very accessible online. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm just at Carl Sona. That's Carl with a K, S-O-N-A. Uh, as Kelly has pointed out a couple of times during our conversation, I do a podcast called Dear Black CEO. I think we're about 80 episodes in and we're actually teeing up for season two where we're, we're going to be talking to more corporates as well as minority-owned companies. So you can find that on all platforms where you enjoy to listen to podcasts and if you really want to go deeper, you can actually check me out on my website. That's just carlsona.com. And there's all sorts of uh, fun information and, and content there as well, too, to allow you to get to know me a little bit better. Excellent. Well, Carl, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for being that exceptional seven-year-old who appreciated his gifts. Um, and thank you, of course, for being with us here today on The Sourcing Hero. I appreciate it, Kelly. Keep up the great work. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for the Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.